From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Today, anti-Semitism rears its ugly head again in Georgia. I'm Greg Bluestein. Governor Kemp praises Mike Pence as the former vice president announces he's suspending his bid for the White House. How does Pence's departure from the race reshuffle the deck in Georgia for GOP presidential candidates? We'll find out. I'm Patricia Murphy. Georgia Democrats aren't happy that President Joe Biden has drawn a Democratic challenger, a little-known Minnesota congressman. And I'm Tia Mitchell. State legislators are weighing next steps after a federal judge strikes down Georgia's district lines. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Well, uh, Greg Bluestein, the podcast, uh, you know, came out probably at about one o'clock on Monday afternoon. But we have to say, this was also our first live radio show on WABE. What a thrilling way to start. It's such a special moment being back with you on live radio air, yeah. having you, of course, join the podcast a, a few months ago. Tia Mitchell, live and in person <laughs> here in Atlanta the last two weeks. <laughs> I know, <laughs> right? I So this cold front coming through, I when I left <laughs> D.C., the weather was very um, summerish down yeah. here. And so now I need to go shopping. Yeah, uh, Tia, I got to be honest with you. I know you love covering Washington, but it's been so great to have you. Don't go back. Come on, stay with uh, us. <laughs> well, I do miss home, but I do. I mean, I love it down here. So I've been here for a couple of weeks. I'll be back soon. We're going to have uh, some things to announce that'll bring me back down. So um, I look forward to seeing you guys again soon. But I'll be seeing you on on this computer screen every morning. In the meantime, we will hear from you, from you, from Washington every day that we are on. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Over the weekend, we saw another very distressing, disturbing um, uh, sign of anti-Semitism displayed in uh, the Atlanta area, a group that um, calls itself the GDL, projected a laser image on Interstate 75 in Cobb County on on a bridge that essentially praised Hitler. They went on and sent out social media attacking Jews. This is an organization that has unfurled banners over highways uh, uh, with hate messages about Jews. Um, And um, we're starting to learn, uh, thanks to our colleague Chris Joyner, 
that many of these activities that they're involved with are also ways that they raise money for the organization. Exactly. It gives them notoriety. Sometimes they actually live stream these incidents and they get donations from donors far beyond uh, far beyond the U.S. really. And look, I mean, politically, Georgia, we like to kind of roll back the curtain sometimes and let our listeners peek behind what we do. And in this case, I often, I'm a proud member of the Jewish community here in Atlanta, I often get texts and emails and messages about various acts of anti-Semitism or others around the community. And it's a debate whether or not to amplify this. Um, and after I talked to some community leaders over the weekend, I decided to, to tweet it and amplify it. And, and there's now going there's now an inve- active investigation in Cobb County. But it is always that balance about, you know, by talking about this, we, we don't let it fester in a vacuum, but also we do bring attention uh, and we give them the attention they crave. So it, it, it's a debate, but I think in this case, it's one of those where we've seen Georgia leaders condemn it unequivocally. Republicans, Democrats, nonpartisan leaders say that this sort of acts of hate have no place in Georgia. Yeah, well, uh, Patricia, I do think we need to say that what that uh, projection read, and and I'm using Greg's caution that we don't like promoting them, but we need to point out hatred. It said, this land is our land, Heil Hitler and the GDL. And as uh, Greg points out, it's been condemned. They This group has been condemned by everybody from Chris Carr to many other Georgia leaders. Yes, it's been condemned, but the condemnations um, aren't doing anything to stem the tide of this. And I think it's very important to remember that this month is the 65th anniversary of the Atlanta Temple bombing, um, that uh, many Jewish Americans feel like the level of anti-Semitism that is increasing and um, feels in many ways that is not being addressed in the way that it should, they are starting to feel more under threat than they ever have since the days of the temple bombing when there was um, a massive bombing at the temple right there on Peachtree Street. It's been rebuilt. It's gorgeous. But it was once the site of a deadly terror attack on the Jewish community here in Atlanta. And as long as we're talking about history, Tia, uh, putting up a sign, uh, a hatred towards Jews sign in Cobb County uh, also reminds us that it was in Cobb County that Leo Frank, the Jewish businessman who many people, most people think was wrongly convicted of m- murdering a young girl named uh, Mary Fagan, was lynched by leaders of the Cobb County community way back in like 1915, I think was the year. Right. Anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism is something that has plagued America for many generations. And what's clear is not o- not only have we not figured out a way to eradicate anti-Semitism, but things, honestly, they get worse at times. And we know with the conflict with um, Israel and Hamas has increased incidents of anti-Semitism in the last couple of weeks. Greg, I'm glad that you mentioned the whole debate over whether yeah. to amplify, because that's something that I was thinking about, too. But what I found interesting when I read our colleague Chris Joyner's article was that it's not even that these messages are really to change anyone's mind. It's almost like the messages are part of this performance, this grift, if you will, that they're pleasing their streamers who are all over the world. The messages aren't even really, yes, the messages are to intimidate and to um, denigrate Jews, um, Jewish people, but the the intended audience 
audience isn't necessarily the people who are seeing the messages in real time. Yeah, Tia, instead of, you know, performance art, we can call it performance hate, right? It's, it's, it's designed to raise money. It's designed to get attention. It's designed to get notoriety. Um, I'm curious to see what the legislative reaction will be. Um, because it's not just the uh, the the bill that that we've been discussing for years now that would define anti-Semitism as a hate crime that's been pending in the Georgia legislature, which might have new life next year, especially after a number of Georgia legislative leaders and the governor went to Israel in May on a on a, on a trade delegation. But also, if you look at what Florida has done, um, there is a new Florida line a law that Governor DeSantis signed last year or this year with bipartisan support that criminalizes distribution of litter on private property, which would uh, criminalize these anti-Semitic and these racist and uh, propaganda mailers, leaflets that were sent out to a number of homes, not just in Jewish neighbors, but all over Georgia, but also it criminalizes projecting images and text onto private property without the owner's consent. So a lot of these messages that we've seen just not just in Georgia, but all over the nation uh, racist and anti-Semitic messages uh, could be targeted by this sort of legislation. By the way, Greg, you talk about that trade mission that Governor Kemp was on. You were on that mission, and you have told us on several occasions that when uh, Governor Kemp met with Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, Netanyahu specifically asked him what happened to Esther Panitch's a bill that would have created the definition of anti-Semitism that would make it part of the hate law that already exists in Georgia. It was remarkable. It was back in May. Um, so it was not doing this, obviously doing this, this, this uh, escalating conflict right now, this escalating Hamas-Israel war. Um, but it was still doing a domestic crisis where Benjamin Netanyahu was, was in a, still is locked in a bitter feud over his plans to overhaul the Israeli Supreme Court and the judiciary, but he still took out an hour of his day to meet with the governor and, and several of his top advisors. And one of the first things that was brought up was uh, the fate of this legislation, which stalled in this, in this Georgia Senate last year after passing the Georgia House. And I think it's going to be, it looks like it will be a top priority for Georgia lawmakers next year, although we still haven't heard too much more uh, unequivocal endorsement from Governor Kemp and nothing like that yet. Yeah, the objections that we heard on the Senate side uh, when this legislation didn't get anywhere were First Amendment concerns, warning that you cannot criminalize speech. And if you pass a bill criminalizing speech in this way, um, that it will simply be uh, addressed in the courts, overturned by the courts. And a request was made, can you rewrite that law so that there's a way to uh, at least pass First Amendment muster, which is what makes that Florida law so interesting, because it's not about speech, it's about private property. And it's about giving private property owners like homeowners the right to not have what they call litter put on their front lawn that is meant to intimidate or um, demean the owners of that home. That's really interesting. It also applies to private property where images would be displayed. And so that is a way that the Florida legislature has gotten around this. I would be very surprised if the Georgia legislature didn't follow suit um, if this Florida law has not gotten caught up in the courts, and so far it has not. Uh, Tia, I, following up on what Patricia just said, one of the things that was fascinating in Chris Joyner's article is that once Florida passed this law, uh, the owner of the laser projector, who could no longer, under Florida law, uh, project images without the permission of the owner of a property, he sent it here to Georgia, and thus we saw the Cobb County banner uh, projected on the bridge last week, this past weekend. 
Yeah, and Florida has had issues still with some of the public displays of anti-Semitism and protesters gathering at public places. But you're right. The projector apparently has been taken out of commission and sent to Georgia. So now it will, to me, the onus will be on state legislators. Um, It's kind of sad that it took more acts of anti-Semitism to kind of get the ball rolling because at the end of the day, this was on the table for them last session. And for whatever reasons, they didn't pursue it. But now, you know, perhaps with more more evidence that um, backers of the legislation will bring to the table, there may be a different outcome. Yeah. And I think that as the conflict and the war in the Middle East goes on, we're only going to see more and more acts of anti-Semitism, most likely also acts of Islamophobia. So you want to be able to find a way to protect the citizens here in the state from these acts of hate, which are which are designed to be both fundraisers. Yes, grifts, but also to intimidate. And it inflames the environment in a way that does lead to an atmosphere ripe for violence. It does invite people who don't know, oh, this is a grift. I'm not going to pay attention to this. It's an invitation to act on those words of hate. And we're hearing from people um, here in Georgia who are talking about leaving Georgia. Is this not a safe place to be Jewish? I I agree. I think this will be sort of uh, example A for lawmakers next year if if they do consider this sort of legislation. What happened on I-75 and Metro Atlanta over the weekend will be front and center. Just a couple of more uh, notes about this. Patricia, it is really kind of chilling to me to hear your observation that there, you've talked to Jewish families who are nervous about whether Georgia continues to be a safe place to live, because that's precisely what happened in the aftermath of the Leo Frank lynching. Many Jews in Atlanta who had found very comfortable homes here left the state. They no longer felt they could live here safely. Last note, um, also, Patricia, you mentioned that there are increased incidents of Islamophobia. We haven't seen them quite as overtly as this, uh, the anti-Semitic incidents we've seen. But over the weekend, I uh, was at an event with Sumaya Khalifa, who many of us know as one of the real leaders of the um, Islamic community here in terms of doing outreach with businesses, with individuals, with religious organizations. And uh, Greg, uh, we both bemoaned the fact that uh, Muslims, like Jews, are both the subject of increased hatred since uh, the Hamas uh, unforgivable attacks on Israel and then Israel's very, very robust response. And that's why it's so important for our lawmakers, as they have been doing, to, to call that out, right? It's one thing for citizens and for activists and, and groups and, and civic community organizations to do so. But um, if, if our lawmakers and leaders haven't been calling it out, this this sort of thing can grow in that vacuum, in that void. And we have been seeing our, our political leaders from both sides of the aisle be very aggressive in calling out this sort of hate. All right. It's going to be fascinating, Tia, to close this out, to watch, as Greg and Patricia have both suggested, how in the weeks ahead with the legislative session in Jan- coming up in January, how they will respond, what they will say about first Esther Panitch's bill, and perhaps taking a page out of Governor DeSantis's uh, effort to deal with this in Florida. Right. And I think it I think it is important to put it in the con- of course we don't want to all otherize like anti-Semitism is its own thing and we don't want to diminish it by, you know, trying to, you know, all hate matters or whatever, you know. But at the end of the day, I think 
when we talk about anti-Semitism, I do I do think it's important to also address the and it might not all be the same solution. I guess is my mm-hmm. point to address Islamophobia, to address anti-Semitism, to address um, racism uh, against blacks and Latinos. There may need to be multiple avenues to um, make it a place where Georgia is welcoming to all people of faith, different faiths and creeds. But I think, you know, the the issue of anti-Semitism um, should be addressed directly. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. We think the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics, and you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. Join the community now by going to subscribe.ajc.com podcasts. You'll get six months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com podcasts so you'll always know what's really going on. Um, Patricia, let's take a look at these interesting developments over the weekend in both the Republican and the Democratic presidential races. On the Republican side, I think most people know by now that former Vice President Mike Pence, in a rather surprising um, uh, announcement, people weren't expecting it necessarily, said, this is not my time. I'm suspending my campaign. That's the official, the formal way of talking about it. But He's essentially dropping out of the race. And well, let's talk first about the um, what what's gotten Kemp, I mean, I'm sorry, Pence to this point, and then talk about it from a Georgia perspective. Well, Mike Pence was getting zero traction in this GOP primary. Um, and when you think about the most famous point of Mike Pence's entire vice presidency was when a group of Trump supporters were chanting, hang Mike Pence. Mm. This was not a man who was going to catch fire in the GOP base, um, certainly not with Trump supporters. And his decision to um, go against Donald Trump during the aftermath and on January 6th, um, aftermath of the 2020 election, and say, I do not have that authority. That was really a defining moment for him personally, but also professionally, because it really did, I believe, seal his fate in the GOP primary. As much as he wanted to run and be an alternative to Trump, it does not appear that there's a majority of GOP voters looking for an alternative to Trump. And for the people who are looking for an an alternative to Trump, they want somebody stronger than Mike Pence who could get Trump voters, somebody like a Nikki Haley. So you have to believe those donors and funders and GOP operatives who don't want Donald Trump back in the White House, primarily because they don't think he can win, um, they want to start to coalesce around, around a single candidate, a strong candidate with their money, their support, their ad dollars, and that is not Mike Pence. Tia, um, Pence had hoped that Iowa would be a place where he could break through a, at least a little bit because there are so many evang- evangelicals uh, in the state who would caucus. Of course, that really didn't happen for him. And he, many observers thought that he was in a box that he couldn't escape from from the very beginning. Um, the people who, the Republicans who wanted an alternative to Trump look back on the fact that he was a lapdog for 
uh, former President Trump throughout his tenure as vice president. The people who are pro-Trump uh, are very upset with the fact that he didn't help the uh, engineer the overthrowing of the 2020 presidential election. Right. It's to what Patricia said was key. It's on one hand, he was aligned with Trump. He talked about the great things they did during their one term and the Trump Pence administration. But on the other hand, he was at times critical of Trump. And of course, he said that he um, could not overturn the election, that it was wrong to ask that of him. At times, he would be a little bit critical, but he never had a definitive lane. He wasn't definitively, I'm aligned with Trump, but he also wasn't like a, a Chris Christie even, or, you know, um, he wasn't the anti-Trump candidate. So what was your lane? And he tried to create this lane as like a traditional Republican, a Reagan Republican, that evangelical conservative Christian. But it's clear that that's not where the base is. Mm -hmm. I mean, because if that was the case, Donald Trump wouldn't be the standard bearer of the party, and he is. So, uh, Greg, let's bring it home to Georgia. Governor Kemp was pretty closely aligned with Mike Pence. You over the weekend uh, uh, sent out a tweet on X um, about how Governor Kemp was reacting to the news that Pence was dropping out. They're very closely aligned. They're very close personal friends, but they're also very close political allies. If you think back to 2018, when Governor Kemp was in that runoff against then-Lieutenant Governor Casey Cagle, and Casey Cagle was slightly ahead. This is before Trump's endorsement. After Donald Trump endorsed uh, uh, Brian Kemp, the first person to come down from the White House was not Donald Trump. It was Mike Pence. He held a big rally for the for the now governor in Macon. Um, since then, they've continued to be close. They've they've campaigned together. And then if you look back to last year, um, when Donald Trump backed David Perdue in a challenge against Governor Kemp, Mike Pence's first big break from his former political boss Donald Trump was over Brian Kemp. It was it was endorsing. Brian Kemp over David Perdue came down, had a big rally for him. So in an alternate universe where Mike Pence actually gained traction, we would be talking right now, if he was ahead in the Iowa polls, for instance, we'd be talking right now about how he, Governor Kemp might be one of those few politicians that really stood to gain a lot from Mike Pence's uh, ascendance in the Republican Party. And of course, that is not to be. Uh, we do want to point out, Patricia, that Governor Kemp has kept his powder dry. He has not endorsed anyone uh, for the Republican nomination. He did say that if Donald Trump is a nominee, although he clearly is not terribly fond of Trump, he's been highly critical, uh, he said he would vote for Trump. But in the meantime, it, it, Greg suggests that it could have been conceivable in that alternative universe that, that Kemp could have endorsed Pence and gone on a ride with him toward the White House. Oh, of course. Brian Kemp would have been a natural vice presidential nominee for Mike Pence. Mike Pence was so close to Brian Kemp that he was the last person to campaign with Kemp, both on the eve of the GOP primary, which was hugely important for Brian Kemp, and then also on the eve of the general election. They There was no distance between those two gentlemen. And as uh, as Greg said, they're just very close Personally, they like each other a whole lot. In a way, though, this really takes um, a hard decision off of Brian Kemp. Mm -hmm. He is also very close with Nikki Haley. He's close with Chris Christie. There are a number of people in this GOP primary who he would love to get behind and love to see them take potentially him on a ride, uh, you know, through the election year as well. But with Mike Pence off the table, that just is one more person he doesn't have to decide about. Okay. So the question is, does it change the math at all for Republican 
primary voters here in Georgia. Tia, we know that the AJC polling shows that Trump here, as in many states, is by far the favorite of Republican uh, Republicans in Georgia. So the question is, does that just continue? Does this give a path to someone like a Nikki Haley? She has some very strong support among very prominent sort of moderate Republicans, people like Eric Tannenblatt, who we all know pretty well. But does it really shake things up at all? I, I think to a certain extent, the people who want to be the alternative to Trump, because we've been saying all along that Trump is the front runner, front runner and everyone else is competing for a second at this point. So to the extent that Pence is out, he wasn't polling very high, but those few percentage points that the number of voters represent now can coalesce around a different alternative to Trump. And I think the Nikki Haley's of the world need some of these, you know, mainstream Republicans to drop out so that it does clear the field in a way that it becomes Trump in one primary alternative. Bill, the famed Des Moines Register Iowa poll, the latest version of it is out this morning, and it shows Donald Trump in the low 40s, and it shows Nikki Haley and, and, and Ron DeSantis tied at 16%. Um, so it shows Nikki Haley gaining some steam, but still Don, Donald Trump with a huge advantage. We know at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's last poll, uh, conducted by University of Georgia, showed Donald Trump with a 56, 57% lead among likely Republican primary voters. We will have new polling out over the next few days, so look forward to hearing for that. We don't know the results yet, but we'll have our, our, our sort of the, the latest temperature of the Republican race. But what we do know here in Georgia is that while rank-and-file Republican voters signal their support for Donald Trump, at least in these polls, most Republican officials are following Governor Kemp's lead. Very, very, very few Republican leaders in Georgia have endorsed anyone, Trump, anyone else. Most of them are keeping their powder dry, uh, like Governor Kempis, which is really fascinating because if you look back at 2016 cycle, at this point, many of them had already endorsed. I'd like to point out that someone on this show on Friday suggested that Ron DeSantis was down for the week because he was running anti-Nikki Haley ads in a number of markets suggesting that Nikki Haley might be picking up steam. And guess what, Patricia? She apparently is in Iowa and New Hampshire. Well, yes, she is. She has had tremendously good debate performances. And also, as the war in the Middle East heats up, Nikki Haley is the one candidate who is getting stronger in this environment. She actually knows what she's talking about. She's not grasping for details from a briefing book. It's very obvious because she was the ambassador to the U.N. under Donald Trump. She is able to really speak in detail about these issues. She's also been doing an immense amount of work on the ground in New Hampshire, in Iowa. She's been doing the work. And the other thing I'll add is that she doesn't spend a lot of money. I've spoken with her campaign, and they really are running this thing on a shoestring. Uh, they will meet up with donors at um, at a city, and she'll be staying in like a Holiday Inn Select, and the donors are like, oh, uh, where could I stay instead of sitting in your hotel? <laughs> so she's going to have, she's built an operation that for, for the money that they're raising, they're going to be able to use it very wisely. Whereas somebody like Ron DeSantis has blown through tens of millions of dollars on on something that nobody's quite sure what it was. So I think she's she is she is a candidate getting better, not worse. And a lot of the other candidates are getting worse. Patricia, my favorite stat about that is that Herschel Walker 
who of course lost last year, last year's U.S. Senate race, has almost as much money in his campaign coffers today with four point five million dollars <laughs> as DeSantis has. Oh no! <laughs> oh my! Well, you know, DeSantis. I, I, we don't want to go off too far the, uh, the reservation and talk too much about presidential politics, but let's face it, DeSantis in many ways has the same kind of problems that Mike Pence. I uh, had that led him to drop out of the race. He's anti-Trump, but uh, you know he's he hasn't become the uh, anti-Trumps uh, people. The Republicans who don't want Donald Trump, DeSantis hasn't become their guy. And I also think DeSantis started scaring off those anti-Trump Republicans who want an alternative. But he pretty much made it clear that like I'm going to be just like Trump, just my name isn't Trump. And for some people who feel like it's not just Trump as a personality who's toxic to the party, that some of the things he says and does are um, not going to be winning messages in a general election. So when DeSantis starts, you know, chartering flights using public dollars to um, drop off um, people who immigrated illegally to, you know, drop them off to a place that. They said they didn't even know where they were going. I think that's just one example. And also, quite frankly, DeSantis, his fight with Disney, his inability to address some of the real problems in Florida with property taxes. I I think people are looking at DeSantis and going, he's going to have a tough time winning a general election if he's the party nominee. Maybe we need to look for someone safer. Tia, let me add one quick thing that I've said since before Ron DeSantis got into this race. There was a story that he was on a plane and ate chocolate pudding with his fingers. Yeah. Yeah. And I've said from day one, no man who's even rumored to eat chocolate pudding with his fingers is going to be the president. I look forward to being proven wrong, but nobody came forward to deny that story. Tia Mitchell, let's move on because there's a Democratic side to this story as well. You are the AJC's Washington correspondent. On Friday, Representative Congressman Dean Phillips of Minnesota went to New Hampshire. He filed uh, his 2024 bid to run for president against President Biden. And Tia, I have a suspicion that in your years of covering Congress for the AJC, you have never once uh, either uttered the word or written Dean Phillips into a story. <laughs> Absolutely not. But also, that that's kind of um, not as surprising because I tell people all the time, if you're not one of my 14 from Georgia, I really don't care as much. I love you. Don't care as much. Um, but I would say even um, some of the national reporters, Dean Phillips was around. He's not necessarily, I, I will say, I I could pick him out of a lineup as a member of Congress. I might not have known his name. I might not have known where he was from, but at least his face is familiar, which is more than I can say for some of the other um, lawmakers from other states. But that being said, people are really confused about what he's trying to do. I will say the, the fact that he's launching in New Hampshire is interesting because that's a state that Biden technically isn't competing mm-hmm. in because New Hampshire the 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 Democratic Party, you know, redid its schedule of primary states. New Hampshire didn't like what the Democratic Party decided to do as far as making it not no longer having New Hampshire as the first primary. So technically, Biden isn't competing in New Hampshire. He's not going to be on the ballot. I think technically you can write him in. Mm-hmm. And so Dean Phillips will be on the ballot, which could, you know, give him a win. But he won't 
because of the state not following the rules, their delegates won't count. Uh, the jolt this morning, Greg, y'all reported that uh, his announcement, Dean Phillips' announcement, was met with, quote, eye rolls from Georgia Democrats. <laughs> a collective eye roll. Yeah, so because Dean Phillips had been rumbling about this challenge for a couple of days, a couple of weeks, really. So I, I'd reached out to some senior Democratic leaders and operatives over the last couple of days just to see if they were sensing any sort of any sort of apprehension or worries. And most of them basically said we have, we, we could care less uh, or couldn't care less. Um, the few who did comment just called it basically a vanity project. I want to read a quote from a, a lengthy statement that Atlanta Mayor Andrew Dickens, who's a close Biden ally, um, sent to me on Friday. And this is the sort of lead in. We have a saying down here, Atlanta influences everything, said the mayor. Dean Phillips, on the other hand, influences nothing when it comes to the Democratic nominating contest. So that is the mayor of Atlanta calling Dean Phillips a complete and utter non-factor. Well, and Tia, uh, the mayor is very concerned about um, the the the, uh, the black base of the party here in Georgia. Make sure that they um, are standing by. Uh, President Biden. I don't see any reason why they'd suddenly go to Dean Phillips, but he does include that in his uh, in his tweet. Yeah, and it's so Dean Phillips is capturing real concern among Democrats about Biden's age, about the economy, about um, inflation, um, even you know the Israel Hamas war. We know. On, in progressive Democratic circles, there is criticism of um, the president's um, allegiances to Israel. Um, some people believe that more should be done for the people of Gaza. So don't get me wrong. There is plenty of criticism for Biden in the Biden administration that Dean Phillips feels that he can address. But from a political standpoint, um, it seems very, number one, haphazard. You're coming in in the 11th hour. You don't seem to have a really focused or organized campaign. You don't have grassroots support at this point. So it does appear to be a vanity project, but one that is trying to capitalize on real concerns about the Biden administration. But he's doing it so late. He has already missed the Nevada filing deadline. Other states filing deadlines are um, 22 states are before the end of the year. Uh, This is going nowhere. Does Joe Biden wish nobody would run against him? Of course, this is as good as it's going to get. This is sort of like a friendly looking little league coach from Ohio who's never run statewide, Hmm. may never run statewide, is going nowhere and has said, has long said he doesn't like to say mean things about his opponents. And his big criticism is that Joe Biden is old, which everybody knows. (laughs) Patricia comes up with the best adjectives. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do want to point out something, something that's really fascinating in Georgia politics. I mentioned earlier how the Republican elected leaders are mostly staying on the sidelines about Donald Trump and the Republican race for president while rank and file voters are signaling their support for Donald Trump. The opposite's happening yeah. in Democrats. There's a number of Democratic rank and file voters who are either in interviews with us or in polls saying that they are concerned about Joe Biden's age and, and other issues. Um, but rank, but the actual elected leadership of Democratic Party here in Georgia, elected leaders all over the state, have almost uniformly uh, endorsed the, the president's re-election bid. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. No media organization in Atlanta swarms politics like the AJC. We have our podcast, the Morning Jolt newsletter, and now we have the new Politically Georgia PM Update newsletter. Make it your afternoon appointment to get caught up on what's going on while you're at work. You can get the afternoon newsletter in your you can get the afternoon newsletter in your inbox every weekday afternoon if you're a subscriber to the AJC. Go to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. You'll get six months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. Get full access to ajc.com, the AJC e-paper, and all of our newsletters for six months for 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts so you'll always know what's really going on. Uh, Tia, we know that last week, Federal District Judge Steve Jones, after a a trial of some eight days, issued something like a 500-page ruling in which he said that the Republicans who drew legislative and congressional uh, lines after the 2020 session had failed to give black voters um, an opportunity uh, to elect an additional member of Congress. And he also said, he said they have to draw a map with one more uh, congressional seat that could be Democratic and at least five in the House and I think two in the Senate. Seven. Now we're going to wait and see exactly how the governor's already called a special session for November 29th, but the, but Republicans are appealing the ruling and they're not happy about it. And uh, we're going to have to watch how it unfolds. Yeah. And that means even as Republicans have appealed the ruling, they and um, their map drawing folks are drawing new scenarios, I'm sure. And then Democratic um, aligned groups, Democratic officials are drawing their maps and everybody's going to have different <clears throat> ideas of how to move forward. I also think that. You know, again, we know that there were recent rulings in Alabama. Louisiana um, has a case. So there's a lot of recent case law that um, so far the rulings that have said create new seats are what has stood. Now, again, Georgia, you know, will have to be evaluated on its own. But I do think it's notable that in these recent challenges, so far, it has stood that when these states have been told to draw new maps, they've had to draw new maps. Where in the case of Alabama, when they didn't draw the map the way the courts told them to, the court drew the map for, for them. them. And look, that's what's going. That's what the big question in Georgia is. First, the big question before everything is whether or not the appeals court will stay this this order until the next election cycle, twenty six, twenty twenty six, rather than twenty twenty four. Um, and and give give lawmakers more time. That of course would um, would be a relief for Republicans, and the Democrats would be outraged by that sort of delay. Um, Judge 
Jones, the federal judge who issued this 500 or so page order, gave a very definitive timeline. He wants these new maps by early December. December, December 8th, 8th is the deadline. So, uh, which which I think is partly to give elections officials enough time. There'll be time crunch, but enough time to set a voter, uh, to, to, to put the ballots out and set qualifying for these potentially new seats. But the second big question is if it's not stayed, is exactly what Tia kind of set up. I don't think Georgia lawmakers will do what Alabama lawmakers is and kind of thumb their noses in the eyes of the Supreme Court and have a federal judge basically draw or order a map be drawn for them. Um, but Republicans will um, try to preserve their majorities and try to have as little turnover as possible because it's that that is that is what politicians tend to do. And Democrats will be, of course, looking to flip as many of those seats because when you have a one majority black new U.S. House district in West Metro Atlanta and seven more uh, potentially new ones in the, in the state legislature, in South Metro Atlanta, West Metro Atlanta, and Macon, it could be significant turnover that affects not just those seven seats, but more than a dozen others. So obviously, uh, Greg and Tia, the drawing of a congressional map uh, to add one Democratic district could get ugly. We know that. But it's in the legislative redrawing that things could really get combative. And what's interesting to me about that is it's not just that Republicans will be drawing, looking to draw lines that preserve as many of their seats as possible, whether they'll go along with Judge Jones, five new seats for Democrats in the Senate, two in, uh, in the House, two in the Senate, we don't know. But what I think is also interesting is that not only is there going to be a Republican and Democratic squabbling, there can be in-party squabbling. Yeah. There are going to be Democrats who are incumbents who say, wait a minute, the lewd lines you're drawing are going to make it harder for me to get reelected. Yeah, because I mean, that's, again, <laughs> what we know is that when they draw maps, they do pay attention to where incumbents are. Incumbents pay attention to where they are, and they're looking at maps, and they're trying to figure out what does their seat look like, and are two incumbents drawn in the same district like that matters to them and that's regardless of party there's a lot of conversation that happens as greg well knows when it's redistricting time and um protecting incumbents again both sides of the aisle do that they try to protect their incumbents now again when especially with these legislative maps the districts are much smaller um so it's harder to you know please everyone when you're dealing with lines that just one shift can make all the difference a few blocks if you will um for the congressional map though it's that give and take if you take from one person's district they got to take from somewhere else because again it's got to all even out uh population wise and um so when you talk about west cobb being a place uh, that they say give black voters a chance to elect a Congress member of their choice. Well, that even though it says include West Cobb, we know that the district is going to need to include more than West yeah. Cobb, more than likely to get the population it needs. So does it pull into Central and Eastern Cobb? Does it pull into Douglas? Does it pull into Fulton? Does it pull into what is that Cherokee? Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the questions that will again, and then every all of those have incumbents that are going to want to know that answer. Guys, we could say the scramble is on, but the scramble has already been on. <laughs> I mean, months ago, there were Democratic uh, officials, Democratic contenders, running for seats that they had, as they're currently drawn, have no chance of winning. You know, solidly Republican seats that were drawn, they were gerrymandered to be that 
to be safe Republican districts. And of course, the subtext of that is they were running for those seats because they anticipated uh, a court ruling. They didn't maybe anticipate it would be centered more in West Metro Atlanta, at least for the U.S. House seat, than North, you know, the northern suburbs. But now we're looking at at least three, maybe four, maybe five U.S. House districts that could be you know, significantly affected by any sort of redrawing. There's two Republican incumbents, Barry Loudermilk, um, Margie Taylor Green, who represent big portions of, or at least slices of Cobb County, along with David Scott, a Democrat. Um, and then, of course, there's Rich McCormick, who has a district that stretches all the way from Atlanta's northern outskirts all the way up to Dawson County in rural North Georgia. And so his district could also be affected by uh, by a redrawing. Um, Greg, you've heard me say this before, but I think it's important. One of the things that really inflames passions and feuding is I remember in the prehistoric days of covering covering the legislature when the maps had to be drawn by hand. You would go into the redistricting office and see huge plats of territory, and the redistricting uh, team would very carefully have to work on drawing those lines. Um, so when a map came out, it was a result of a lot of work, and if you wanted to change it, there was going to be a couple of days of work going back the other way. Now, you're upset about your district. You go to the redistricting office, and in two minutes, the computer gives you a map that you want. Uh, you can go on social media right now and see all sorts of armchair experts who have used sophisticated software to draw districts. It's really fascinating, actually, to see some of the, the maps they've produced that show anything from a 10-2 uh, you know, Republican split to a 10-4 Democrat, to a 10-4 Democratic split. Yeah, I was thinking um, the same. Like even you can, there are software, there are websites that just regular folks can try their hand and make maps. Um, I think what the partisans do uh, has some calculus that's not always uh, evident to the naked eye. I, I We're running out of time, but I don't want to miss the chance to you to ask you about Republican Congressman Mike Collins. He's a freshman. Uh, but in the leadership shakeup that deposed um, uh, Kevin McCarthy, now we have Mike Johnson as the speaker. Um, Johnson had been the vice chair of the GOP conference. Mike Collins is running for the job. I would argue one of the reasons he's gained prominence is because he had a sense of humor on social media during the chaos of not electing a speaker. Very much so. And not just like a sense of humor, but like he was on the pulse. So it was like, and not just like memes and like trendy, but like, the, he was basically verbalizing what everyone else was thinking about how frustrating the speaker's race was and all the confusion. I did look, The Hill did write an article about, you know, some of the candidates who are out there. Mike Collins is considered a candidate. He really hasn't talked much about it publicly. Um, and there, the forum is not for another week or so. So there's still time for all the candidates to kind of get their names out there, but he is not the only freshman lawmaker mm -hmm. running for vice chair. There are a few other candidates who are only in their second term. It's a pretty low, I mean, again, none of us had heard of Mike Johnson and he was vice chair. So it's not the most high profile leadership <laughs> position. Bill, if I have any advice for our listeners, it's don't underestimate Mike Collins. Um, you know, he might be well known right now for the funny memes and tweets and all that that's gotten him a lot of national attention. But remember, he's the son of the late U.S. Representative Matt Collins. Mm -hmm. He lost a bid for Congress way back in 2014, a very close bid to Jody Heiss. He won an eight-candidate Republican race last year running on a hardline conservative campaign. 
and he beat a Donald Trump-backed opponent in that primary runoff. So uh, he's not someone to underestimate. Bluestein, you got the bullet points on Mike Collins. That was really interesting. I covered that race a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. We'll watch to see. I think it's fascinating that we do have yet another really ambitious member of Georgia's congressional delegation. So we'll watch to see just how well Mike Collins is able to do in uh, the leadership race coming up. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live on WABE 90.1 in Atlanta and on AJC.com weekdays at 10. Or look for us in your favorite podcast app sometime in the early afternoon after each show. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. We'll see you again tomorrow for another edition of Politically Georgia from the AJC. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.